Well, we're in the book of Revelation, and what an interesting time for us to be in the book of Revelation. We have seen the first chapter, which is the revelation of God and Jesus himself. And then we have the seven churches, and then the rapture of the church, and then the revelation of the throne upon high. And then we find the weeping in heaven. And we had a song tonight that talked about who is worthy to open the book. And, of course, Jesus, lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. And then the different trumpets and the seals and all the rest are open. And the seventh trumpet is open. And part of the seventh trumpet is those seven bowls or vials. And two or three weeks ago, if you want to go back and listen, that's sort of where we kick back into the series is uh, that those, those uh, seven uh, vials being dumped out. And how and why is all this happening? This is Jesus coming to put an end to the Gentile rule of this world, and he is now reclaiming the world for God. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, we sinned and we were separated from God. And uh, now Jesus has come to redeem this world unto himself. How does he do that? He prevails through the power of his blood. I tell you, I probably ought to insert somewhere in this series just a message on the power of the blood itself, because that is exactly uh, how he is enabled and, and what is the, the power of his strength. I was thinking last Sunday being Easter and, and all the rest, we've missed communion this month. Uh, I know I missed it very much to celebrate uh, taking the broken piece of bread, the suffering of our Savior, and we missed uh, taking that little grape juice, reminding us of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. When several years ago, my mom came and stayed with my wife and I for a good period of time, and after she was here maybe a month or two, my mom, she, she said to me, Richie, what's wrong with you? I'm really dis disappointed in your preaching. Now, isn't that nice to get from your mother? I said, what's wrong, Mom? She said, I've been here almost two months, and you haven't preached on the blood yet. I said, well, shame on me, Mom. I'll take that. And we sort of get challenged by it. So we want to make much of the blood. There's power in the blood. We overcome by the blood. Praise God for the Lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. And he is the one that's going to prevail in this chapter, in the next chapter, in the next chapter, as the same story is unfolded with a different um, angle amplified. But it's all Jesus and his second coming, his return, as he comes to uh, set this world aright, a, a which it needs. So here we find ourselves in chapter 17. And in the 17th chapter, it was the judgment of Babylon. And particularly the first few verses uh, talked about that great whore that sits upon the beast. And uh, it was quite a picturesque thing. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll dig in again. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that you'd help me as I preach, that I would have ability to make it very clear, and that you would use the Word of God to speak to our hearts, to motivate us to be servants of yours. Father, I pray that the uh, different places that are hearing it, that their internet would go well, their phones and everything, and help the electronics here as well. And now, Father, may your hand be upon my mind, my, my heart, my lips, and may I speak with power and authority tonight in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Well, if you could be here tonight. We, we've been joking with, you know, some of you might remember Miss Teresa 
took the skeleton from the science lab and brought it down. And he's been the most faithful person. He hasn't missed a single service. But tonight he became Pentecostal. They raised both of his arms up like that, and they put a sign that says, Amen, like that. So tonight I really feel charged up, ready to go. Jeff's saying amen. We've even got those dry bones uh, excited about these messages. So uh, I hope that you're ready tonight. Let's start with chapter 17, verse 1. Just a little bit of review, and then we'll get to new material. Verse 1, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven uh, vials, and talked with me, saying, Come up hither, and I will show unto the judgment of the great whore. Now, let's remember what the great whore is. This is the ecumenical uh, Babylonia uh, uh, type of uh, attitude, the spiritual harlot that from the beginning of time has been the uh, anti-type of God on this earth. And she's the one that's rejoiced in the death of the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament. And she's made herself drunk with their blood. And she's rich and she's powerful and politically connected. This is the one now that God says, show to John particularly what I'm going to do to that, that church that is not my church. The church that says they're the real deal, but they are not the real deal. Um, I want to show you particularly her. And then in the second part of this, we're going to get over in chapter 18. He's going to say, I'm going to show you the political Babylon. But here this chapter has to do with the, with the spiritual Babylon, which is this great whore that sits upon the, uh, the great many waters. That's all. She has the whole world the idea of sitting on many waters, she's not just sitting in one location. Her influence is universal in power. And that's amazing, I believe, in my own heart. And you can disagree with me, but I believe this is something like the Roman Catholic system. And it's amazing in Roman Catholicism, they can go into any place in the world and sort of mix themselves with whatever religion is there until eventually they're able to overcome it and they become dominant. They'll just wait, you know, 50 years, 100 years, you know, a century or two, and um, eventually they supersede. And so this, this Babylonian type of uh, 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 spirit that's been there uh, the tower since the Tower of Babel, and go back and listen to last week's message. It says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. That means this political alliance with the spiritual alliance. They have been in bed together. That's exactly what it means there. And it says they have been made to drink with the wine of her fornication in consolidating her power and in the death of her enemies. The political powers have been been complicit. Verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw the woman sit. And it describes her sitting there in scarlet colors and full of names of blasphemy. And so the scarlet colors speak of her royalty and the power and the names of blasphemy that she says she is God. And this is exactly what Satan says in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 14. He talks about that I want to sit on the throne of the king of the north. He wants to be like God. He's blasphemous, this, this, this group that's here. And it says there's a, 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 the group that has seven heads and ten horns. 
And we explained that last week. This, this political power has seven heads. We're going to talk about that a little more, so I'm going to just jump past that. And it says in verse 4, And the woman was arrayed with purple, scarlet color, gold and precious stones, pearls. We discussed all that. And a cup in her hand full of abominations. The idea of abominations is she is doing things spiritually that absolutely is distressing to anybody that's righteous. And our holy God has been perturbed by her over the centuries. And her cup of judgment is getting full to the brim. And God's going to make her drink it, as it were. And it says in verse um, 5, And upon her head, forehead was written, Mystery. Remember, a mystery is something that's not yet been revealed. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And so here we find this, this Babel system, the Babylonian system. She's the mother of it all. And she's the mother of all the abominations against God upon the face of the earth. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Blood of the saints, remember we said Old Testament saints. Blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ, New Testament saints. She has had her hand in pushing against the true people of God in every generation. Look at verse 7, uh, verse 6, the last part. And it says, When I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? As I was studying afresh this week, several of the commentators really picked on that phrase to talk about John didn't just say, wow, this is, you know, she's something to behold. There seems to be in these statements almost a seductivity even to John himself. That as he sees her, he's just, there's something that just draws her in. You know, in a, in a political sense, when we see somebody who's quite admirable, admirable, and when they speak, we think of them as having charisma. Not the charismatic movement, but they say, oh, he's a, he's a charismatic speaker. He can just, I mean, he can make anybody do anything. This is her. Only in a seductive spiritual sense, she can fool. The Bible talks to us about even the very elect themselves. Isn't that something? She is uh, somebody that can draw and bring confidence and put people at ease. And John is almost like, it seems, in a stupor of admiration. And the angel, he uh, basically says to him, hey, wake up. Why are you marveling? He's getting, you get back here. She's not to be worshipped. She's bad. And often when a pastor preaches on the sin of the Babylonianism of our day and age, People say, how could you be against them? Aren't those spiritual people? They talk about God. They even refer to the Bible. Do you know the Bible says that even the, the devil fears and trembles at the name of God? And he's able to appear as an angel of light? And so we, we see this, this idea that this end-time ecumenicalism is not easily discerned for a weaker Christian. Even John admires her. Let's go on, please. I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast. There you see there are two separate interpretations. 
I'll tell you the mystery of the woman, and then I will tell you the mystery of the beast. They are not the same, although they are on the same plane. She is riding on him. The ecclesiastical spiritual is made a league with the beast of the last half of the book of, of the tribulation period. And so I'm going to, he's, I'm going to explain this to you. And so he says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. So seven political powers, but then ten manifestations of kingships. All right, look at verse 8. And the beast, and here we're going into new territory. And the beast that thou sawest was and is and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. There we find almost a counterstatement to what we would think of when we think of God. God always has been, God is, and God always shall be. And in a sense, this is a mockery of the, of the unholy trinity. Here we see the, the beast that was, is, but it shall ascend out of, the holy, uh, out of the pit, and it shall be no more, it says a little bit later. And notice where it gets this. It says it'll ascend out of the bottomless pit. In the chapters before, do you remember when we studied? It's Satan that's giving the power to this beast. It's ascending up out of the bottomless pit. And this, this end-time ecclesiastical church and this beast have their authority and strength. And indeed, do we know Satan has some power? Yes, he does. Enough to think that he could even overthrow God. He is not a weak little sissy. He is able to enable He's, he's the, uh, the prince of the power of the air on this earth. And we talked about last week or two weeks ago that in the end time, their very last battle almost seems to be an air power struggle, maybe a nuclear war at the end that's going on. I don't know. So here he has this power coming up out of the pit. Go on, please. It says, and he shall go into perdition. And perdition is judgment in hell. And that's what's talked about in Revelation chapter 19 and 20, when all three of the Holy Trinity are cast into the bottomless pit and cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Go on, please. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. Now, a moment ago, we talked about John wander, wondering. That means they're going to be um, awestruck by her. They're going to be taken in by her. So the people of the earth, it says, shall wonder when they see this whore, this ecclesiastical church and this beast, and they're going to be sucked in or seduced or mesmerized. They're going to be wondered uh, by her whose names are not written in the book of life, and these are the unsaved of the earth that will be following this unholy spiritual uh, appearing group. And it says, their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was, notice, and is not, and yet it is. And sort of a mockery of that same idea of God in a positive way. Look at verse 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. That phrase just simply means, let me show you the interpretation. Okay? 
Let me show you what wisdom would tell you. This is what's going to happen. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Almost every commentator, almost without exception, points back to one of two interpretations to this, and 95% of them point back to one interpretation. One interpretation that is not as held by most is that these are seven political powers that she has made around the seven seas around the world and that she's drawn her strength out of seven kingdoms around the earth. 95% of the commentators believe these are the seven hills of Rome and that this is Roman Catholicism or something in that era that is, the moment the church is raised up and, and all of the true discernment is removed. And remember, when the church goes up, the Holy Spirit no longer is doing the repressing of sin. And Satan seems to have full sway. Up comes this ecclesiastical uh, group, and it's riding on these seven mountains. And most people would say this is a a spiritual political alliance that's rooted probably in Rome, Italy. All right? And then it goes on. It says, The seven heads are seven mountains on which a woman sitteth, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, that sounds difficult, but it really isn't. The five kings, it says there, there are five kings that are fallen. These are the Gentile powers. You're taking notes. These are the Gentile powers before Daniel, before this time. And so you would go back to Babylon and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the first Roman Empire and, and all the rest. You add them up. There are five of them that have come up to that. And one is, that would be the Roman Empire upon which John is living. So we have five, and we have one. And then he says, and the other is not yet come. So there's going to come a reviving of the Roman Empire. In the year 476, the Roman Empire was defeated and out of power. And for the last, what, 1,500 years, it hasn't officially existed. But when the church is taken out and Antichrist comes back, the ten toes, remember? I could instantly come back in, and they, these ten kings will form a loose but powerful alliance upon the face of the earth, all right? So, five kingdoms that were, one that is, is the Roman Empire, it no longer exists, and the one to come would be the revived Roman Empire, that would be the seventh. Now, let's go on, please, that same verse, and it says, and one, and the other is, and uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. So if you remember from last week, we went back in the book of Daniel, and we looked at these ten horns coming up, remember? Remember the ten horns? And then three of those horns were to be knocked off, and one was going to come up, that becomes the eighth horn, okay? And that horn is the Antichrist. It is the beast that's talked about here. So see, it wasn't as hard as you thought it was. 
All right? Five Gentile powers that have been in power up to now, the Roman Empire, and then the revived Roman Empire, and this is that seventh, and then there's going to be an eighth that comes up and, and reign, and that will be the Antichrist partially fulfilled in the past by Antiochus Epiphanes that put that pig on the altar and all the other stuff. This is what he's talking about here. This is God's timeline for the rule of the world. And when this is all done and that seventh week is all done and that this eighth king is defeated by Jesus, then God's going to set up the millennium. And God is going to have his rule but for the last two or three uh, millennium, I started to say centuries, but millennium, it's been Gentile rule. But then it's going to be ruled by God, by Jesus Christ. And it wouldn't be something if you and I were alive and lived in the millennium to have Jesus as our king upon this earth. What an amazing thing. We'll talk more as we get in the book of Revelation. But that's what it's talking about. Five kingdoms that were, one that is presently the Roman Empire, one that shall rise up in the future, that's the revived Roman Empire. And then that eighth, which is the Antichrist, in that middle of that eighth, uh, that tribulation period, he rises up and all the things that he does. All right, so let's, that's described for us. And let's go in verse 11 again. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the, he is of the seven. So that says he's, he's in the same nature of the seven. He is a, a Gentile power. And who gave them, who's been giving them power all these years? It doesn't come from God's way of running things. This is, comes from a Gentile source. It comes from even Satan's authority upon this earth. And he goeth into perdition. Now, remember what he said what perdition is? There's going to be a judgment of the ungodly into the lake of fire, into perdition. All right? Look at verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. So these are that ten Roman Empire kings, the revived Roman Empire that is not in, it's not where we can see it today. Everybody's trying to guess what the configuration would be. When I was a young boy, can I tell you the interpretation? Uh, 45, 50 years ago, everybody thought it was the European common market and that the Antichrist was Henry Kissinger. That's everybody had it all figured out. I guess he's still alive. Maybe he could still rise up, you know, the guy that was and is and is not. I, I, we don't know. One of my pet peeves in prophecy is preachers that get up and say, this has to be Hitler. This has to be Napoleon. This has to be Henry Kissinger. Good thing those preachers died because their books would be worthless. Those sermons, you can't do that. We can only sense the kind of an aura that these men will have. And could I say, like Napoleon, like Hitler, maybe like even a Henry Kissinger and the amazing ability that he had for bringing people together and all the rest, in that spirit, but one day there will be an eighth 
and he will rise up with that kind of authority. And look at verse 12 again. The ten king horns, which thou sawest, are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. They haven't been revived yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, a lot of people, we talk about, you know, the 70 weeks of Daniel and the you know, seven days, and they try to say the kings are going to be one hour of that. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I believe that this is, this is they're going to have a temporary time. It's not going to be a long rule over centuries. They're going to be one hour. And how long is the tribulation period? Seven years. So it's, this is a, a, the idea of one hour. Maybe I could best give it to you like when I was a child, my mom would say, we'll go in a minute. Do you remember asking your mom how long a minute was? And then you got really snapped behind the ears when I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So I would sort of put this one hour in that kind of an explanation. They'll receive, could I just put the word one minute? One hour, one little short little period is the idea of one hour. They're not going to rule for a long period, but they shall receive power revived after the church is gone for this seven years to be with the Antichrist. And these ten horns will agree with that eighth one right there, all right? Verse 13, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. This means they've signed peace treaties. This means that they have given authority over to one to make decisions. And when you look at a lot of the different loose political configurations, even the last century or two on the earth, Let's take just a few of them. The Axis powers and the allies. Do you realize? I'm not saying those are these powers. But I'm just giving you an idea how it would work to give authority. There was a point during World War II where all the allies, and we call them good guys, gave all their power over sort of to the United States, and they let um, Eisenhower lead them into Normandy. I mean, he... He made final decisions for a lot of nations. On the other side, you had the access powers. And they gave their power to Hitler and Mussolini and the, the head of the Jap Japan worked all together. To, to, and so this was not un, unthought of. This, this is something that we see. We look in communism, we used to call it the Iron Curtain. And those countries, Yugoslavia and Hungary and Bulgaria and all, I don't know, all the countries around, the, around the Russia, they all were ruled out of the Kremlin. So when we talk about this ten nations ruling together and they had one mind, it means they agreed to act in unison. Um, the European common market, let's just say that that maybe is part of this revived Roman Empire. They now have their own currency. It's called the euro. Now, whether it's the euro or whatever it is, they have one power. 
They've agreed on one economic, one political, and the whore representing one spiritual unity upon the face of the earth. They're working together. It says they have one mind. They give their power and strength unto the beast, and the beast gets his power from the pit. Satan in disguise. Look at verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. We're going to discuss that more in the next two or three chapters. This is just an announcement of Armageddon. It's not a full description. But they're going to make war with the Lamb. Jesus is coming back. Now, let me just remind us of something that we already know. Jesus comes back in two different stages. The first stage, he comes in the air. And he blows, calls the trumpet, the archangel, and up comes all the Christians, dead and alive, and they meet the Lord, and so are they ever with the Lord in the air. And we go up to the judgment seat of Christ, and we become part of his, and we're going to return with him. Okay? That's called the rapture. Do not mix the rapture up with the second coming. The second coming happens on the other side of the seven years. And the second coming is when Jesus comes on the white horse. And they come, and boy, and the power and the glory of his coming is going to destroy Antichrist. And he has the power and authority from his Father. And that has already been in the previous chapters when they opened those different seals on the contract he proved that he had the legal right to redeem this world. And so what we see now in these judgments is Jesus now coming back to claim what has always been his, but Satan had somehow got his grimy little fingers on. He's come back to get this world. They make war with the Lamb. Let's sort of picture it in this way. In 1947... Israel was restored to their land. Britain uh, was ruling over Palestine and different ones with the UN. They made a treaty, and nobody could believe after 2,000 years of no Israel, there it was again. Never has anything like that ever happened in the face of the earth. But from 1947 until 2020 that we live right now, the Palestinians that had lived there for those 1,800 or 2,000 years, they're not about to give up their, their claims. And you, you read, any time that there's bombs going against Israel and the Palestinians are shooting back, the Palestinians just don't think the Israelites had any right to come and take their land. And, of course, the Jews say this is the promised land described by Moses, you know, with the great sea and Lebanon to the north and all. This is our land that God has given us, and he's brought us back. And in that time when the fig tree blossoms, we know we're getting close to the coming of Jesus. Okay, all that's happening. But my whole point is this, that tension, that fighting over the promised land is there and we find here that Satan is not about to let his grip loose of the political power and authority of this world. And even though he knows in court, in front of the Heavenly Father, that he has been evicted, he still makes war. 
he still makes war. Look on, if you will, please. These shall make war, in verse 14, these shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them. Boy, that's a wonderful statement, isn't it? The Lord is going to win. Uh, you might say in some ways, if you read the book of Revelation, it's a spoiler because we already know who's going to win in the end. It's sort of like, you know, every once in a while there's a, 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 a big game played on Sunday and people come to church and they're trying to be, you know, faithful and not be home, listen to the Super Bowl or whatever. And so they'll put it on a, a, some sort of a, and a recording. And so they walk out, and somebody will say, Yay! Don't tell me who won. I don't want to spoil her. Somebody has to say it anyhow, don't they? They want to go home and watch the game like it was just unfolding. The book of, Reve book of Revelation has already unfolded the whole thing. Jesus wins. And as such, our Redeemer will be able to redeem you and me and give us eternal life. Listen, you're on the winning team. You, you know that your Redeemer has the authority and the power to overcome the beast and Satan, the dragon, and every other label you want to put him over on. He will be dethroned and decommissioned, and Jesus will be enthroned upon this earth. And for all eternity, our King of kings and Lord of lords will be overcoming. So let's read that a little further. Verse 14, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them for, or because, He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. And they that are with Him, with Jesus, are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. And that's you and me, brother. That's us. You know the Lord Jesus. God's knocked on the door of your heart. He's called you and and in Jesus, he's chosen you, and he's asking you, the faithful, to come with him. When, we, when Jesus returns on this victorious day, the church and others will return with him, the called, the chosen, and the faithful. So will we be at this event? Yes. But we'll be riding with the other side. Amen? Let's go on, please, if you will. Look at verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so here he talks about the universality upon the waters that the whore sits on. Remind ourselves, she is the End time church, the ecumenical church. Many tongues, many different nations. It's universal. And this battle called Armageddon will take place. I'd like to read just a few passages to us. Let's go to Psalm 2. Would you turn with me to Psalm 2? We're going to talk about this end time battle. And it's the second psalm of the Psalms. All right, let me get back there. Turn with me if you got your Bible. Maybe this will mean more to you having studied this prophecy recently. <clears throat> Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a, a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So who's the anointed? Jesus. Saying, let us break their bands asunder. What does Satan think he can do with this Armageddon battle? Break the authority of Jesus and God over this world. Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens, who sits in the heavens looking down at all this? Heavenly Father shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Satan, it's just a big laugh for you to think that you could overthrow God and that you could defeat Jesus. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, This is the God in heaven. And vex them. Not hex, vex. And the idea of vex them is they're going to be so sorry that they tangled with God and that they ever rose up against him. And he's going to come down and he's going to whoop them. All right? He's going to vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Jesus is put upon the seed of Jerusalem, my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for for thy possession. God's going to give to Jesus this world for his possession. He sits him upon the throne. Thou shalt break them with a rod of... Iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. This is the instruction to this end world, this Babylon, this Babel type of atmosphere. He says, be wise, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. And what should we do? Kiss the sun. S-O-N. That means to embrace Jesus. Be wise. Could I just stop our message? If you don't know the Lord Jesus, let wisdom say to you, kiss the Son. Be wise, be instructed. For the others shall be vexor. And they will rue the day that they got on the side of Satan, even if by deception. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed, oh, circle, underline those last six, seven, eight words. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Doesn't that psalm mean a lot more to you now? being read in the context of this Armageddon battle. The world shall be made in derision. It shall be vexed. But God will give him the kingdoms of this world at his request, and he'll rule and reign over the Gentiles for all eternity. And this is our Lord there. Let's look at a few more verses that we would would mention tonight that have to do with this. Um, Let's go to the book of Jude. That's right before the book of Revelation, so only one chapter long. Look at a couple of verses uh, in the book of Jude. Look at verse 14. 
And Enoch. Now, who was Enoch? Wasn't he the guy that was not because God took him? You know, God seems to reveal to different special people in different generations like Jeremiah, that weeping prophet that stood for God and was thrown into the pit, remember, and all the rest. And Daniel, what an amazing guy. When he's praying, God shows him all the visions. And John, the one that Jesus loved, he's given the special vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, here we find in the book of Jude that Enoch, this very special one, is mentioned way back in the early of creation. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Amen. <laughs> to what reason? To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs. He goes on, this is speaking of what we're talking about here, Jesus coming back right there in the book of Jude. Go with me also over to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, end of the Old Testament almost. Chapter 14. Let's look at the first few verses of Zechariah. I have an old Schofield reference Bible that gives notes in it. It calls this the summary of the events at the return of the Lord in glory. Up number one, Armageddon. So that's what's being discussed in this chapter. It goes right along with this where we're reading in the book of Revelation. So Zechariah chapter one, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Let's stop and get that in our vocabulary. When Jesus comes prophetically, it's called the day of the Lord. That's his day. That's the day that this world is presented and Jesus Christ is made King of kings and lords of lords. That is the day of the Lord. And Joel means the day of the Lord. So there's a lot of prophecy. Remember multitudes, multitudes in the, in the valley of judgment. Joel discusses this as well. So this is, whenever you hear the day of the Lord, it's Jesus coming back in victory. Amen? So the day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. And I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. So remember Armageddon, that the bat kings are going to all come up and they're going to fight against Jerusalem in this big, this big valley uh, down to the side, 200 miles long, remember? Uh, so here it's taught, I will gather them together. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the resident of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day where? Upon the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus leave from? And where is he going to come back to? Same exact place. The Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave, that means divide, in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. So it's going to look like Jerusalem, the Jews are going to be destroyed, and, and it's, all, it's, it's all over. 
And Jesus comes back, puts his feet on that mountain. It divides open, and the people have a back door. You so reminds you of us as Christians, there hath no temptation taken you, but God is able to make a way of escape. Doesn't that sort of make you think of that verse? And the Jews will be delivered on that day of Armageddon and the Lord's return, the day of the Lord. Keep going. Verse 5, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto our Israel. Yea, and ye shall flee like as, unto a, uh, as ye fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and mark it. All the saints with thee. Are you a saint? Say amen. Amen. Where will you be on this day? With thee. With Jesus. Amen. I know. There's one day I know where I'm going to be in the future. I'm going to be with Jesus. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Boy, whatever is going on in the air, just a couple, was it yesterday or so? We were, these rain clouds coming through. I think it was my wife. She said, dear, look at the sky. It was weird colored. You ever have storms like that? Man, this is one storm when it comes. It says, the light's going to be weird. <laughs> the Lord's coming back. It's not day and it's not night. The judgment of God's coming and the whole earth seems out of focus. This is the way I interpret this. Verse 8. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And I get the idea of the living waters. Could it be possible that this world has been so ravaged by war that God brings healing to the earth itself? You can interpret that how you want. That's how I see it. Look at verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Why? Because he has the title deed. How did he get it? He bought it with his precious blood. Why? Because he's the kinsman redeemer. Isn't that beautiful how it comes together? Okay. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. We're not going to have any doubt who's king of kings and lord of lords on that day and for the next years to come, for he shall come to claim his own. Well, those are interesting passages. Let's go over to Revelation chapter 19 for a moment. Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 11. We're going to look at chapter 18 next week. We're in 17 now, but we're looking in 19 because it sort of gives us further details of this judgment. So we're in 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Who's that? Jesus. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Praise the Lord for the blood. And his name is called 
the Word of God. He's the Word made flesh. Amen? Isn't it neat to see all these things coming together here? Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. So what are you going to have that day? What are you going to be riding? A white horse. And what will you be clothed in? Fine linen. What will it be like? White and clean. My grandma be happy. And out of his mouth, Jesus, go with a sharp sword. And how is he going to prevail then? With the power of his word. Amen? How did God create this word? With the power of his word. That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule over them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. There we go back to that winepress of chapter 15 and 16. This is the judgment of God. This is the day of the Lord. This is Armageddon. And he hath on his vesture and upon his thigh a name written, and here it's repeated, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our Lord coming in victory. This is the return of Christ. This is the second coming. This is the day of battle. This is Armageddon. This is Satan's Waterloo. He's going to be destroyed. Now, Revelation 17 is just announcing it. I've given us an unfolding through some of the rest of prophecy, but that's what's being announced in Revelation 17. So let's go back there, please. Let's read verse 14 again, 17, 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. What's going to happen? All those nations and tongues are going to come up to Armageddon thinking they can throw off the spiritual authority of Christ. They're deluded by the great illusionist named the beast. Okay? And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast... These, now here's this little surprise. We're going back from the beast now to the whore. And the whore is the spiritual church, the beast is the political. Okay? What's, what's going to happen? These shall hate the whore. And there's some things now that are going to switch. This is when Antiochus Epiphanes, this is when that great horn, this is halfway through the tribulation period. In the first half of the tribulation period, it appears this is ecclesiastical church, this Roman Empire church, this, I think, Roman Catholic type of power that's mixed itself, and everybody seems to be, she's riding this political power, the political power in the middle of the seven years pivots and they take that great big horn and they jab and kill her. They separate ways and they reveal her for the person and character that she is, the great mother of harlots, the great whore, the spiritual zero with the rim rubbed out. All right? The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall, look at the things that will happen. First of all, They'll hate her. This means the kings will stop being in league with her. Second of all, they shall make her desolate. That means they're going to take away all of her 
physical wealth and, and possessions and she shall have nothing. She'll be desolate. If uh, somebody loses their um, job and, and they can't make their payments, they're put out in the street and they're desolate. That's the idea. So she's no longer in favor and she's sort of kicked out of power and she's out with nothing. And then it says, <clears throat> and she's naked. Now, that may sound like it goes with desolate, but it really is a, a third thing that happens to her. The idea of being made naked is she's stripped of all her royal, regal, purple robes. Her cocky little way. Her little strut is gone. And she's stripped, and for the first time, the world sees her for the spiritual adulteress that she is. And she's not anything that's godly at all. She never really cared about the peoples of the waters of this world. She is made naked. And they shall eat her flesh. And the idea that all of her assets, all of her enemies, the former people that met were in league, or the Bible makes it clear, were in bed with her, fornicating with her, are going to now eat up everything that she was. She's going to be just totally annihilated, as it were. And... They'll burn her with fire. And the idea of burning with fire is that she is socially, politically, totally toast. She has no more influence, and her, she's gone. She, she's, like I said, a zero with the rim rubbed out. She's burnt away and gone uh, from this. Isn't that an amazing turn of events? These two, the church is gone. They make this fornicating marriage together. It's not a marriage. It's, a, it's jumping into bed together. The politics of this world with the church of this world. But she is duped. The one that thought she could dupe everybody and you'd wonder to see her, she herself has been taken in. And this end time person, he wants to be admired as God. And how can you have a spiritual system and you be king God? And the only way you can do that is to get rid of her. So she is removed. And what happens in the midst of this time? The abomination of abominations. He tries to assert himself as deity upon the earth. This is what Satan is about. His proud self wants to sit on God's throne. And here is his attempt to do so upon this earth. Okay? Verse 17. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will. Let's just stop there. This wasn't an accident. All the way back in the Old Testament from Enoch, Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, name all these Old Testament prophets, God has said there's going to be a plan. And when these kings come to Armageddon, God's going to put it in their mind to kick off the spiritual authority, be loyal to a fault to this one man, to where they come down against Jerusalem to their own destruction. God's going to put it in their mind to come to do this. And God has seen this from eternity past. It will be no surprise. 
He'll put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. When God says it, it's settled. God's word is forever settled in heaven. And when God's word comes forward from the heavenly throne, Jesus shall rule and reign. Satan, why don't you just give up? Verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city. Like I told you, 95% of people believe it is some form of a spiritual domination on the seven hills. They believe it probably is Rome, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And so we sum up with several different thoughts here this morning, this evening. First of all, we realize this, this Babel, Babel system has been working its way against God from the very, from, from Adam and Eve, Noah's flood, Noah's grandson, Nimrod, Tower of Babel. It's worked its way all the way up, and here it's in full blossom underneath the Antichrist, and who is behind it? Satan. He, he is the one that uh, wants to rule and reign over this. And uh, so we see these two systems colliding. We have the political system. We have the, uh, the ecclesiastical system. Um, and the great whore is going to be destroyed in the end. That's what this whole chapter is about. Let me show you the explanation of the whore and of the beast. They're two separate things. And... Um, Armageddon is going to be unfolded in chapter 18 and 19. We'll deal with that more and more and more. Now, there's a question, and we're going to deal with this next week. I'm going to ask you a question and see if you can figure out the answer. When we have the political Babylon, will regular Babylon be rebuilt? And that'll be the Babylon. There's an answer in the scriptures on this. So, But we do know... A form of Babylon, if not Babylon, will reappear. And it's also interesting, the very kings that were so excited about the spiritual apostate abomination now are the very ones that take the ecclesiastical church and have it, have it for an end. We, chapters 17 and 18 deal with the whore and this fornication with the political beast. Chapters 19 through 22, listen to this, deal with the lamb and his bride. They're put side by side. The fake, that which is the 666, that which comes short, and that which is perfection. The thing that you and I need to really realize in our life, we can be part of the overcomers. And it only happens if your name is written in the book of life and your name has been written in the blood of the Lamb. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? As I read, a lot of the commentators, they'll all stop. They're all stopping right in all this material here and they're pleading with anybody that will listen 
Why would you want to be cast into perdition? Why would you want to go into the lake of fire when God has made a way of escape? And here he's called Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and Overcomer. You can overcome as well if you'll receive Christ as your Savior. So we bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's somebody listening to the voice of this message that does not yet understand that you, your son Jesus, is the way of salvation, may they realize to not receive you is to die and to be judged in perdition and hell and burning fire for eternity. And yet, Lord, we saw this morning clearly in the book of 1 Timothy that you will have all men to be saved but it's only for those that believe. Please, Lord, touch some hearts tonight of any man or woman or young person that has not yet bent their knee, yielded their heart and mind to you as King of kings, Lord of lords, their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I say to you, if you tonight need to know Jesus as your Savior, you don't need to me to be there with you. You can, at, right where you're sitting, where you're driving, wherever you may be, you can bow your head right tonight and say, Dear God, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. He is God. And I believe that I need to have my sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. And I want him to come into my heart. Just bow your head and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need Jesus. And I believe he truly can save me. I put my trust in him. That's how Psalm 2 ended. Blessed are they that put their trust in the Lord. Would you do that tonight? If you do that, would you mind giving me a, a shout out in some way? Call me, text me, send me a, a letter. And I'd like to give you some things that will help you start to grow in your relationship to Jesus. Let me know if you will. Tonight I've asked uh, Brother uh, Jim to come back. And we're going to sing a song of victory tonight. We're going to sing number 46 in our hymn book. And it's the song, Crown Him With Many Crowns, The Lamb Upon His Throne. Number 46. Jim, would you come and lead us, please? Sing all four verses. Wow. Um. 
you've given us. Help us to live in victory this week. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be faithful in anything you give us to do. In Jesus' wonderful name, and everybody said, amen. Have a good week.